Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 2016 film, The BFG. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everybody. I'm excited for this episode. I'm very excited because I'm welcoming a brand new co-host to the show. Let's welcome Paul Wright to the Baton. Hi, Jeff. Thanks ever so much for having me. I'm really honored to join you on the Baton. Uh, I was a, a little late to the party. I only really discovered the podcast uh, a little more than a year after you started. But I started listening to an episode or two a day, and uh, usually while I walk the dog at night, and caught you up about Jurassic Park, I think it was. I've really enjoyed all the episodes, and I totally applaud you for all the passion and effort you've, you've put in creating this outstanding podcast resource. It uh, appeals to musicians and music lovers, music movie buffs, teachers and students alike. Yeah, thanks very much for that. It has been a lot of fun creating this resource, as you call it. So please take this opportunity to tell us about yourself. Sure. Well, I currently work on the music faculty at the American School of Doha in Qatar. Uh, I've been living here in the Middle East with my family for three years. Before that, I spent six years in Houston, Texas. But prior to all my teaching back home in the UK, I played professionally for 12 years as a musician, working mostly in the orchestras and the bands of the West End musicals in London, but also in some of the symphony orchestras and, and generally as a, as a freelancer. Coincidentally, Jeff, it won't surprise you to hear that my main instrument is the trombone, which uh, seems to have been uh, pretty common amongst your guests. Must be something about trombone players. I know. It's so weird that a lot of my guests are trombone players. I think it was Jim Nova, who was my co-host for The Empire Strikes Back, who said that trombone players are naturally John Williams fans because John Williams writes such great music for that instrument. Oh, absolutely right. Yes. You landed a, a great co-host with Jim Nova for that episode, Jeff. Uh, Jim is uh, really well known and respected in the trombone world. And uh, he's uh, even on my side of the Atlantic. And uh, he is absolutely right. John Williams writes really good stuff for the trombones. I think my favorite bit of all of the repertoire, and it's lots to choose from, is probably the final trombone flourish in the last few seconds of the Superman theme. Um, the first time any trombone player plays that, they always need that extra bit of time before attempting it because it really is pretty tricky. So when I started this podcast, I never thought really, honestly, that my voice would be heard in so many countries. And of course, I never thought that the show would reach practically every corner of the world. And thanks to Paul, I could say that now I have a listener in the Middle East. Well, it's not a surprise to me, Jeff, because it really is such a great podcast. But um, there are actually more listeners than myself in Qatar. Since I found the podcast, I have uh, set my students various research papers that have um, made some episodes required listening, uh, and they've enjoyed it too as well. As a teacher, I, I reference John Williams' music a lot. I think a lot of teachers do. But um, in a world where computers are used to make millions of dollars uh, by making music, um, he has been greatly responsible for keeping the symphonic music relevant, I think. He doesn't just make movies come to life with his touch of genius, but he, he also he serves the craft, I think, which could, could well keep the art form going. I firmly believe, much like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, that John Williams' music will be revered hundreds of years into the future. Well, I, I mean, I certainly hope so, at least. 
Yeah, actually, you know, I wish I could go into a time machine, like even 50 years from now, and ask people if they know who John Williams is. It'd be interesting to hear that response. I'm sure they, I'm sure they will. They, I'm sure they will, yes. So that's great that you've given the podcast as a homework assignment. And, uh, you know, I've actually thought about this. This is probably the closest thing that you're going to get to an actual textbook on John Williams' music. Yeah, probably right. But like you say, talking about the, the, uh, the time machine, in 50 years, 100 years in the future, there's probably lots of textbooks on John Williams' music, I imagine. Probably. <laughs> well, his, his music has, has been a part of my life, uh, you know, has always been a part of my musical life. I, I played much of his repertoire in my youth and in professional orchestras later on. But sadly, none of those experiences were, were under the great man's baton. I was very jealous of Jim Nova's stories of being conducted many times by John Williams. The closest I got was uh, in 1999 in, um, when I auditioned for the second trombone job in the London Symphony Orchestra. I, it wasn't a surprise that I didn't get the job. I was only really in my final year of college at that point and pretty green behind the ears. But I found out later that one of the first official gigs for that musician that won the job was actually the soundtrack to The Phantom Menace. When I heard that, the word jealousy doesn't really do it justice. I'm not sure if that counts as a near miss, but I like to think it does. So you were also probably very jealous of hearing Maxine Kwok talk about making The Phantom Menace, which was her first official job as a member of the LSO. Yes, I know. It was it was friendly jealousy, though. Um, I, I've always loved the Star Wars episodes. Like many people, I've, I've been a, a crazy Star Wars fan since I was a kid. Um, and it was lovely to see how much of a fan Maxine seemed to be as well. I'm, I'm sure any musician who's had the fortune to play for him goes to work that day just that little bit more excited than normal. So Paul, as, we, as he said, came to the show later than most. But when he found out that there was an opening for a co-host for the BFG, which is our focus for today, he asked for it right away. So, Paul, what does, why does the BFG mean so much to you? Well, the, the story is hugely popular in the UK, Jeff. It was, uh, it was written in 1982 by Roald Dahl and was regular bedtime reading for me when I was a kid. In fact, pretty much all of Roald Dahl's books were. They were read to me by my parents. I read them myself when I was able and, and now I am reading them to my children. Um, and this is pretty common for my generation in the UK. Uh, and as a result, I, I kind of feel protective of this story and, and the film, especially considering the movie hasn't widely been accepted as a success. The story is about orphan Sophie, who one evening spots a giant roaming the streets of London. The giant kidnaps her to prevent her leaking the story, and so begins a magical adventure in which this particular giant, the, the only one that seemingly doesn't eat children, and Sophie form a friendship that sees them thwart the plans of several other larger and meaner giants from eating the entire child population of the world, receiving a little help, as one does, from the Queen of England. <laughs> it's dedicated to Dahl's late daughter, Olivia, who sadly died at the age of seven in 1962, and the lead character, Sophie, is based on his granddaughter, the English model Sophie Dahl, who is married to the British jazz pianist and vocalist Jamie Cullum. So as you said, it wasn't well received and it wasn't a big success in the United States. But I really don't know why, because Steven Spielberg's career was cemented by E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which is one of the most quintessential children's movies in history. But, you know, I think 
at this time when the movie was made in 2016, I think the Peter Pan complex that made Spielberg so successful in the years before Schindler's List was fully gone. And I think his perspective on the story didn't mesh with how many people, especially in the UK, expected it to be translated onto the screen. But as for me, I left the theater kind of underwhelmed and not too impressed with any aspect of the film, including the music. In many cases, I think an English director would have been better suited for the film, though there are some things in the film that probably would not have worked with a lesser director. And the visual effects and the motion capture technology come to mind. And another director would have obviously hired a composer that would have written less impactful music. Yeah, I think so, yeah. The the biggest issue, I think, is the story itself isn't particularly broad. Um, there's little suspense and, and everything is a bit predictable. I get that I get that opinion, but to me, it would suggest that people who hold that opinion are not necessarily watching the film through the correct lens. Um, this is very much a story for me for for five to, to nine year olds, and in bringing it into the twenty first century, audiences expect the big Hollywood machine to create lots of sub levels of context so that the parents come out of the theater satisfied too. Well, that doesn't really happen. It's a story and a movie for young kids. And for me, under that criteria, it it does really well. My kids are eight and three, and they absolutely loved it. Um, And you mentioned that Spielberg's direction helped advance the art of motion capture and bring some of the characters to life. Yeah, and in, in a children's story where magical creatures and a world of dreams need to be brought to life, hmm, I wonder who he might have used to create the music for that, Jeff. <laughs> well, of course John Williams is going to do it. And those who listened to the episode covering The Force Awakens know that the maestro was unable to work on Spielberg's Bridge of Spies in 2015 because of an unknown health issue. But Williams seemed to be in better health in 2016, because he conducted his usual Hollywood Bowl concert on Labor Day weekend. Though it was interesting, I was there, he only appeared on stage for the second half of the show. So it seemed he was in at least better spirits and anxious to work on this film, which had started filming in spring 2015, which was almost immediately after Spielberg finished filming Bridge of Spies. Spielberg used uh, Simulcam, uh, a process first used on Avatar that allows directors to combine real-world actors and sets with actors and sets that are computer-generated. The combination of motion picture suits and the Simulcam sort of allowed actors uh, Mark Rylance, who played the BFG, Jermaine Clement as the evil flesh lump eater, and the other giants to be digitally turned into the animated characters and then allow the live characters, most notably 12-year-old Ruby Barnhill, was, who was absolutely magnificent in the role of Sophie, that allowed them to interact accordingly in the magical world that the animators created for the movie. And, of course, the final piece of the puzzle is the music. As we know, John Williams loves writing music for British stories, going all the way back to his work on Jane Eyre in the early 1970s. I don't feel that there is much of a British flavor in the music for the BFG, Paul, but perhaps you hear it differently? No, I actually agree. Yeah, it, Williams has uh, definitely created more British-sounding scores than this. Um, as you say, Jane Eyre and, and War Horse, I think, in particular. Um, but by all accounts, John Williams was very keen about the project. As you say, his, uh, his back catalogue of children's and family movies is very strong. You know, Tintin, the Harry Potters, Hook, the Home Alones, and, and of course, the quintessential family movie, E.T. 
Um, but with his last four movies featuring either epic galaxy-wide space operas or those with heart-wrenching adult themes, a whimsical story about a little girl and a friendly giant must have seemed like a nice change to him, uh, for him to apply and an opportunity to apply different approaches to composition. And he actually described the composition process as like writing a little children's fantasy for orchestra. It's definitely not a classic Williams score, and I don't think it would get anywhere near featuring on a short or even long list of his best scores. But it, I find it charming, and it has moments of, of beauty, I, nevertheless. There are a couple of features of the score that stand out in particular to me that I think are worth mentioning before we get into the detail. First, the woodwinds. Williams uh, writes masterfully for everyone, but he has always written masterfully for the woodwinds and has been, uh, he's, and always generally quite generous with solos um, from the woodwind section in all of his scores. Well, in the BFG, he really ups his game. There are inevitably um, lots of woodwind solos um, in a score of much smaller proportions. But, uh, but more significantly, there are, there are moments when particular sections are featured and able to shine instead of n- not just principal players. And this is particularly true of the flute section. There's an argument here, Jeff, perhaps maybe a little controversial, that says the flute section parts for this movie include possibly the most virtuosic and complicated writing for any instrumental section in any movie scored by John Williams. Wow, that's a big claim, I know. I'd love to hear the arguments on that topic. But there is definitely no doubt that the flute players certainly earned their fees on this performance. Well, I wouldn't agree agree with that statement about the most virtuosic and complicated writing for every instrumental section if you apply it to the entire orchestra. But certainly there are some real tough passages for the flutes, as you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And another feature of the score, which potentially could be classed as uh, as a criticism and possibly a reason why this isn't a widely celebrated score is its similarity in places to so many other of his scores. He seems to tap into his back catalogue with several moments that sort of made me frown as I kind of worked, tried to work out where it came from. In general, the, the closest stylistic comparisons I would say would be Hook, Home Alone or the more recent Harry Potters and the Adventures of Tintin. The main theme has a passing resemblance to The Chamber of Secrets. The light-hearted action movie could be heard in perhaps The Prisoner of Azkaban. The energy and scary moments remind me a little bit of The the Witches of Eastwick. There's a sense of wonder from E.T., which is recalled fleetingly in Dream Dream Country. Uh, The bad guy is very clearly referenced to uh, similar antagonists in Home Alone and Superman. Oh, Oh, and talking of bad guys, Jeff, even Darth Vader is referenced. Strangely also, the theme from The Fury appears in The Witching Hour. As I said, this, this familiarity of the score could be deemed a weakness. Rehashing, rehashing old music is, is not something that endows a composer with great celebration, even though it would be something that John Williams has earned the right to do, given the huge amount of incredible music that he's gifted us over the years. But from another perspective, it could in fact demonstrate a quite clever and deeper approach to creating music for movies. So here's what I think. The movie is for kids, young kids. And anyone telling a bedtime story to a young child knows that that story has to be interesting, maybe include a little of adventure, but it absolutely must not be a story that scares them too much or makes them tense. You you want them to go to sleep at the end, right? So with that in mind, the story needs to offer excitement, but be grounded in comfort and safety. At no point must the child be in any doubt that the heroine will win and the baddie will lose. 
And I think John Williams creates this mood by giving the listener something slightly familiar. A quote from another melody, a chord sequence, a particular use of instrument. It's definitely not him phoning it in by self-plagiarizing from work done before. It's cleverer than that. It's, uh, it's one of the reasons why he's the best. And that's just one reason why I'm glad to have you here to talk about this score, Paul. Because I really would not have approached his intent for the score from that perspective. But you are right that it really can't do it, overdo it on the scare factor because you got to make sure these kids feel safe and secure while they're listening to it in their beds and while they're sitting there watching at home with their parents. But it does have every right to do so in some scenes because some of the scenes could be very scary. It must be very difficult for John Williams to write music for a children's movie when he's 84 years old. Even though I think John Williams is a kid at heart, it still was probably a little bit difficult. Yes, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. So anyway, Jeff, we've, uh, we've chatted for about 20 minutes without actually playing a note of music from this score. We're going to lose listeners. Should we get to discussing some musical moments? Yes, we definitely should. So I know I said that the film and the score underwhelmed me after watching it the first time. But after seeing it again to prepare for this episode, I found some gems in the score that increased my appreciation of it. And I'm going to be talking about those a little bit later. So on the soundtrack album, is the, the first track is the Overture, an, uh, an exploration of the main theme amongst magical textures and tone colors. The theme mostly represents Sophie, but then later evolves to become a theme for Sophie and the BFG's friendship. It permeates the score throughout the movie and is mostly used for, at sweeter moments. However, it does also function as a sort of a template for the creation of other themes and motifs. And as you heard, Jeff, those flutes have got started early with about a thousand more notes than any of the other musicians. The overture lays the foundation for the general mood and feel of the score. Uh, sure, there are more grandiose and bigger textures to come, but generally this is a much more reserved and a much more pastoral feel to it, similar to the score of Warhorse. In terms of other symphonic writers, I'd say more Vaughan Williams and Holst than, and less Mahler or Shostakovich. So the film score itself gets started with a five-minute sequence that introduces Sophie in the orphanage. Interestingly, we don't learn a lot about Sophie in the scene, just that she's the only one awake at 3 a.m., which she calls the witching hour. That's when bad things happen, 
and we think it does when she sees a giant outside her window. Before she sees the giant, uh, Williams generously provides several of those typical musical characteristics that depict mystery, wonder, and apprehension, a touch of fear, and of course, a hint of magic. Heavy use of chromaticism, uh, notes that feel out of place and cause a sense of discomfort, harp glissandos, string tremolos, and uh, the use of the mark tree, a, a sort of small wind chime instrument that is almost solely used to represent magic in film scores. The earthy oboe and bassoon sounds and motifs contrast with the fleety flutes which represent the magic. And then Sophie sees the giant. A huge hand grabs the little girl, accompanied by a large flourish for the full orchestra. The muted brass offers typically sort of sinister and scary discords, which perhaps could have been constructed out of the scraps of Anakin Skywalker's final transition to the dark side. In the BFG, Williams combines his recent inclination towards uh, textural landscapes of sound with the use of character leitmotifs. I mentioned earlier that Sophie's theme acts as a template for other themes. In this regard, Williams really shows his skill of using quite a basic composition technique to achieve great effect. The opening of Sophie's theme is deceptively simple and suitably childlike and optimistic. Here it is. It's constructed from the major scale, using notes 1, 3, 5, and 6. In the witching hour, he wants a different mood, and he uses this motif. Which does the job perfectly. However, if we look at how this theme is constructed, we see that it too uses notes 1, 3, 5, and 6, but this, team, this time from a minor key. 
It's exactly the same construction, but sits as the opposite end of the emotional spectrum, purely as a result of a, essentially a single difference, the tonality. We can do this with other melodies too. It's a very simple and basic composition technique, changing essentially one musical element to create something totally different. I actually teach that technique to my middle school students, and John Williams is not above using the technique either. The fact that it's a childlike compositional technique or a young musician technique is so appropriate to this movie, I think, and it makes me think he's not just using it to save time in the creative process, but as a distinct decision that ties the music closer to the mood of the story. It's also one of the secrets how John Williams is able to produce such incredible, grandiose scores, often with very short timescales. Previous podcasts of yours, Jeff, have discussed how Williams has created multiple scores in a single year, and people who've worked with him must have wondered how he's been able to keep on top of all those projects. Well, not only is he just sublimely creative, of course, we know that, but he's also a master of manipulating his music to get the most out of it. A sort of an economy of material, you might say. In a score such as this one, the, the 64 minutes of music included on the album, perhaps really only 15 to 20 minutes is genuinely created from nothing. The rest is crafted from that 20 minutes of material. It's, it's how all the greatest composers have, already, have always worked. And that mastery just keeps going when the giant takes Sophie and the journey to the giant country begins. And this is one of my favorite moments in the score. As the giant leaps over land and sea, the music feels like a waltz. And it makes the journey feel more magical to me and not so much awkward or scary. This reminds me of something from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet. If I, if I didn't have a point of reference from the movie, I perhaps might imagine toys coming to life and dancing around a bedroom. That's interesting. So you mentioned earlier how some parts of the music feels connected to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I feel that the music for the trip to Giant Country borrows some of the feel of Buckbeat's flight. Not really in the notes, but in the construction of the melody. No, not really in the instrumentation because it still is not flight. It's not conveying flight. It's just conveying that, that travel kind of thing. So this is a small moment in the film, but I really enjoyed the music playing as the big friendly giant goes to his secret room where he stores dreams. In some ways, the music might be a little too much 
for a scene that doesn't really need to convey the urgency that the string instruments bring out in their performance, but it's still a great little moment that I was glad to hear on the soundtrack. Then we are introduced to the main bad guy, an even bigger giant than the BFG called Flesh Lump Eater. About halfway through this scene, I scribbled Harry and Marv in my notes, meaning that the music for this oaf of a character strongly resembled the music for the villains from Home Alone. So the main difference between the villain theme from Home Alone and this theme in the BFG is using the tuba as the main instrument for the giants instead of the bassoon for the buffoons of Home Alone. Absolutely. So here is the first seven seconds of the music as it's played on the soundtrack. Do you recognize that chord sequence? How about if I play it like this? Yep, 
Darth Vader's chord sequence tells you a bad guy has arrived. <laughs> Here, however, Spielberg and, and John Williams wisely remember that this movie is for young kids. And after that introduction, which is actually unheard in the movie's sound design, comes a bad guy theme, but not in the style of the Emperor from Return of the Jedi or Martians in, in War of the Worlds. Although the animation makes actor Jermaine Clement pretty intimidating. It's John Williams' music that reassures the audience that this chap is not to be taken too seriously and will ultimately end up a loser. Jeff, you're correct that Williams references the comical approach to an antagonist theme uh, as he employed in Home Alone, but I think he also points to, he points to the Lex Luthor theme in Superman. I also detect a little nod to the Grinch as well. Played wonderfully, as you said, on the only instrument that really could represent a clumsy oaf, the tuba. So the theme for the Giants is really my absolute favorite theme for the film. I mean, John Williams knows how to convey evil, or at least comical villainy, better than just about any composer. So just talking about evil in general, you can go all the way back to the Cowboys from 1972 to show some great examples of how Williams was writing great music for the bad guys. Now, obviously, the Jaws theme is the best, but of course, there is Darth Vader, and there's the music for Keys in E.T., and Daryl's theme from The Witches of Eastwick. So, in the BFG, there is a scene where we see how badly the really big giants treat the big friendly giants. It's one of those great one-off compositions that put a lot of great energy into the scene. So, as BFG is walking toward the mountain that leads to Dream Country, he wakes up the sleeping giants who have a little fun with a derby on a hill that is potentially going to injure BFG. It's a wonderful scherzo that gets that great John Williams ending, which is reminiscent of Aunt Marge's waltz from Prisoner of Azkaban. Building up to the finale of the scene, and one of the giants will get hit in the nether regions by BFG. And there's a comical pounding of a drum to highlight that moment. That is so much fun. I really adore these little moments in the scores like this. I mean, there's the asteroid field, the tennis game, Aunt Marge's waltz, the list goes on. 
Yeah, absolutely. Williams just has that ability to put a bit of class into into even moments that aren't actually hugely significant for stories. It's just that attention to detail and just that genius of uh, of description, regardless of how important the scene actually is. Fantastic. So if the flute section haven't already earned their recording fee, which they probably already have, they do go above and beyond in dream jars. The piece is hugely complicated with uh, very difficult runs and intervals that are difficult to play and difficult to listen to. The action on screen sort of overshadows the music, which is a shame for the very hardworking musicians. Uh, I found myself at times reminded more of the repertoire of Alban Berg or Arnold Schoenberg, two of the major composers in the 20th century who reacted against harmonic rules that had been in place for several hundred years and established a genre that started out as expressionism and then became serialism. Here's a quick serialism 101. The genre highlights extremes of tonal color extremes of dynamics, instrumental registers, and of course, virtuosity. It also redefined the term atonality, from being music that has no established key center to where all notes should be considered equal for the music to be truly atonal. This meant to be truly atonal and all notes equal, then all 12 chromatic notes should be sounded before any of them are repeated. Now, this resulted in composers carefully crafting sequences of notes called tone rows. The music of this period is one of the most difficult genres to engage with for a layman musician or music lover, as there is absolutely no harmonic center to feel a sense of home. And that was the point of the style. And funnily enough, what sounds like randomness is probably the the most complicated genre of music in its construction. It's very much an acquired taste. Um, Anyway, the reason I bring this up is for moments in Dream Jars, Williams probably gets as close to this true atonality as he's ever been in any score. It opens with a single line across the flute section that with only a couple of repeated notes features every single note of the chromatic scale. It's not a true tone row, but it's very close. I found an interview with Ben Smollen, one of the four flautists on the score and a, and a regular con- a collaborator with John Williams on his scores. His flute colleagues on this album were Jerry Rotella, Heather Clark and Jenny Olsen. He described the experience as one of his most enjoyable recording moments, which surprises me not at all. 
Apparently, there was a, a double recording session one Sunday. The, the orchestra worked the, the 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. session, and then they were all sent home except the flutes and the harp to record presumably dream jars and then some of the more heavier moments for the flutes. Ben Smollen explained that it was only those five musicians, John Williams and Steven Spielberg in the studio, plus the sound engineers, of course. Uh, and apparently Spielberg was shooting footage with his camera through most of it for his own personal library. And apparently he even joined in with an impromptu jam with his clarinet. It's one of those moments musicians would cherish forever. And, uh, and I, I can't help but wanting to hear Steven Spielberg play clarinet. But that experience, I suppose, is, is the least they deserved after the challenge they faced with the music written for them. Um, as, a music, as a musician with a little experience of film score recording, I can only hope that they did get a bit of a heads up before the sessions began. It's not normal that you do, but when the music is this hard, you, you kind of need it no matter how good you are. You know, listening to Dream Jars, I, I'm taken back to Prisoner of Azkaban and the music for the bird's flight into the Whomping Willow. The flute player for that had no rehearsal, and she did it correctly on the very first take, which impressed John Williams because he didn't expect anybody to get it right the first time. Yeah, the, the, the sight-reading capabilities of the musicians on these scores are absolutely phenomenal. Um, absolutely. So now that we've set up the friendship between Sophie and the B BFG, particularly after this sequence in Dream Country, the main action of the story gets going. The BFG and Sophie discuss the giant's tendency to travel around the world eating children. So they hatch a plan that requires the help of the Queen of England, who, of course, as Hollywood has regularly depicted, is only a phone call or a little visit away from every British citizen in the country. And I personally have Lizzie's number in my phone. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's amazing that the Queen's sleeping quarters was so accessible. And I would imagine every British child watching that knew full well that the Queen's guards would not have been so easily duped by the BFG. But we digress. It's a children's story. Just let it go. Indeed. Well, the sequence around Buckingham Palace and the meeting of the Queen provides both my favorite musical moment in the score and one that annoys me incredibly. During these scenes, Sophie and the BFG, they sneak into the palace grounds, past the guards, and distribute a dream to the queen that makes her believe the imminent threat to the world from the giants. There then follows several comedy moments regarding the BFG mixing up his words as he speaks to the queen and then clumsily trashing the palace as he makes his way to the ballroom for breakfast. Now, when I say comedy, remember what I said earlier, that this is a movie for five to nine-year-olds. Comedy for them is not necessarily comedy for us. And at various points during these scenes, it infuriates me that Spielberg left much of the music that John Williams wrote for these moments on the cutting room floor and instead opted for various excerpts of Rule Britannia, probably the most ridiculous of British cliches used in Hollywood ad nauseum for many, many years. I thought more of Steven Spielberg, but this just made me roll my eyes really loudly. <laughs> Although, that said, with some of the terrible additional cliched choices for the attire of the palace staff, the military commanders, and the terrible stereotype mannerisms of the characters, this awful music was probably appropriate. Definitely not one of Spielberg's better moments. Yeah, this would have been a moment where a British director definitely would have avoided these cliches. Yeah. Any Brit would have shot those ideas down straight away, I think. 
Contrasting this is my favourite moment, appealing to the trombone player in me. Uh, the moment the BFG nervously meets the Queen, there is a beautifully noble brass chorale for horns and trombones. Now, to this point, the brass have been fairly anonymous. There have been moments where they used to add a bit of weight and aggression, as one would expect, but little in the way of thematic material, and certainly not the featured sectional playing that the woodwind have enjoyed throughout the score. Here, the brass are treated like a chamber ensemble, and it further shows John Williams' versatility in his writing for all sections of the orchestra. This moment is preceded by a slow string passage in 6-8. It's fairly slow. I'd say regal is probably the best description. But the change from the triplet feel, which is the main feature of music in 6-8 on the strings, to the duple time brass chorale in 4 creates a wonderful sense of grandeur and a, and a warm emotional feeling. This chorale reminds me of the famous Nimrod from Edward Elgar's Enigma Variations. Now, I'm, I'm pretty confident and speaking for my fellow brass players around the world in saying that whilst we love letting rip with fortissimo passages, of which there are many in the library of John Williams, there is equal satisfaction and sometimes more musical reward to playing simple music at a calm dynamic in a comfortable register of your instrument where you can focus purely on making the most warm and balanced collective sound you possibly can. It shows a controlled power and you find similar examples in the finale of Mahler's Second Symphony or Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra or the trombone chorales in Brahms and Schumann symphonies. Simply stunning and, and John Williams has provided us with one here, albeit a little short for my liking. <laughs> and, and then... Shortly after this, there is a, a very silly moment of toilet humour, which I, I can't defend. And I can only apologise, Jeff, on behalf of my nation for the simple fact that us Brits do love a good fart joke. I'm not proud of it. 
However, watching my eight-year-old boy, Dexter, bent double with tears of laughter streaming down his face at that moment. Well, you can't help but bring a smile to your mind too. And Roald Dahl, to be fair, does think of a great name for it, Whiz Poppers. Well, the Brits aren't the only ones who apparently love that kind of fart humor. I'm thinking of the campfire scene in Blazing Saddles, which has been regarded as one of the funniest scenes in movie history. And then it just continued to snowball after that. And we get to this kind of scene today. I think they all owe a little debt of gratitude to Mel Brooks. I felt absolutely terrible for Penelope Wilton as the queen and Rafe Spall as one of her kind of uh, valets and all the other actors who had to play that whiz popper scene. I'm sure it's a classic moment in the book, and though you might not be proud of it now, Paul, I bet you probably were doubled over it with tears of laughter when you read it in the book. It's actually a little different in the book. Only the BFG uh, whiz pops, I guess that would be the verb. Um, Sophie, not surprisingly, in the, in the Buckingham Palace, strictly bans whiz poppers. But the Queen mistakes the term to mean a type of music and actually encourages the BFG to partake. So he does. <laughs> and Roald Dahl is very specific, however, in saying that the Queen smiled at the outcome. You see, even the Queen likes toilet humour. Well, I would imagine Liz does every once in a while. <laughs> but it doesn't make me feel better about the scene. I mean, it, it means that Melissa Matheson actually enhanced the plot to make one big fart scene in the screenplay. I, I guess it's, you know, going back to rural Britannia, it's the American way of poking some fun at the British. Yep, and those cliches, they, they are reasons to poke fun at us sometimes, I think, yeah. Anyway, after everyone is back to normal, the stage is set to capture the evil giants and discard them on a secluded island. The urgent fight music incorporates many of the main themes as the giants are bested and the world is saved. John Williams invites the brass and strings to, to let their hair down a little.
so John Williams' piano writing is always going to put a little knot in my throat, especially in a finale. And I've talked about this on many previous episodes. So Sophie, in the end, has apparently been adopted by the queen or taken in as a ward of the state. They don't really say, and I don't really know. But she's definitely not in the orphanage anymore. She gets out of bed and goes to the window and says, Good morning, BFG. And that piano tinkles away on the friendship theme as the BFG's big ears hear Sophie and he smiles. Now, there were not a lot of absolutely great moments in the film before this, but that last image of the BFG smiling really helped me to forget a lot of them. Yes, it's a, a lovely moment and it, it's sort of a perfect example of what the whole story is about, really, that sort of friendship and camaraderie between people who share certain circumstances in life and in their case, loneliness. It's a, it's a great moment. So as I've said before, it's, it's, not a, it's not a score from the top shelf of John Williams' library and it certainly isn't a great movie. Personally, I think Roald Dahl's stories always work best in one's imagination as you read them. Well, I'm going to say this. I think both movie versions of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which are probably the most popular Roald Dahl story, they're great film adaptations. So some of these things work really well in the right hands. I mean, Tim Burton, for example, was a superb choice for the recent Willy Wonka movie because he's just as weird as the subject matter. (laughs) That's true. That's true. As a score, I found the BFG to be, to, it was delightful. There were some lovely themes, some textbook compositional techniques to represent the magic and a warm and nostalgic glow of friendship and tenderness. Uh, and not only that, the entire score is an absolute masterclass in writing for woodwinds. The playing of those musicians should be highly celebrated. Um, on one hand of the score, the score features moments of broad textual creativity and even atonality. And on the other, much of the music sounds like something the maestro has already done many times before. But instead of sounding old, it just adds to the charm that accompanies essentially a very simple story for young children. But most people aren't going to go to the movie to hear the music. And critics were mostly kind to the film, especially American critics. But some said the story was unassuming while praising the motion capture work. And none of that really mattered because the BFG made just $55 million in the United States after it was released on July 4th weekend. The Secret Life of Pets, which was released the following week, was a bigger draw, making seven times as much money and eventually swamping the BFG out of the theaters. All wasn't lost, though, because obviously the BFG was going to do well internationally where it made almost $140 million. But the movie was essentially a flop for Spielberg, his first in about 10 years. 
and the box office take didn't help the film get noticed when award nominations were being handed out. Mark Rylance got a couple of minor nominations for his work, and John Williams only received one nomination of importance for Best Music at the Saturn Awards, which honors the best in science fiction and fantasy movies. So the score to the musical La La Land, which I guess is a fantasy film, won that award over the likes of the BFG, Doctor Strange, Rogue One, and Passengers. Again, La La Land against those? I don't know. So, mark this off as a blip in the John Williams filmography. I mean, at this point in his career, of course, he's still turning out music that deserves praise, and I discovered over the course of this episode that there's a lot of praise to be given for the BFG and how much praise it should have gotten back in 2016. The little moments in the score, especially with the flutes, are still better than some of the big moments from many films of the time. Absolutely. Uh, in a way, uh, John Williams is he's a victim of his own very, very high bar that he has set himself with his incredible back catalogue. A mediocre John Williams score equates to probably the best score that 90% of other composers could possibly write. So, Paul, thank you so much for helping us understand the finer points of the score to the BFG. It's been such a fun experience for me. And I'm looking forward to having you back shortly for an exploration of a smaller score to another Spielberg film, The Post. Yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. This has been an absolute pleasure. So next up on the baton, we'll return to the Star Wars sequel trilogy as Paulius Aedicus and I examine the music for The Last Jedi. I hope you join us for that. And as always, please write a review of the show on Apple Podcasts and feel free to send an email to jeffswim at aol.com with comments about the show or any other music you've heard on this episode. Thanks for listening, and until next time, as Paul would say, the baton is down. (laughs) 